This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. America is argumentative right now. Our schools partly to blame. Plus, everyone knows play is beneficial for kids, but kids are doing it less and less. Our teachers say that trend isn't likely to get better anytime soon. And acne, it's still a big deal for teenagers, but maybe not for the reasons you think. Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Two of them are with me here in rainy Kansas City. We're taping this on a very rainy day. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? Hi, I teach third grade. Just all that, of it. Third grade. It. Just it. That's so, it. That's all of it. Ja- <laughs> Jamie Myers, what do you teach? I teach eighth grade applications, which is a speaking, writing, listening class. And you teach in a, a district in, in Kansas, the great yes. state of Kansas, yes. the Sunflower State. And uh, joining us again from Chicago uh, for the first time on the show, in fact, Kevin Vanderporten. Kevin, what do you teach? I teach U.S. history. I teach at a Chicago public school in the northwest side of the city, and I teach sophomores. Well, let's get to our first topic of this episode. You may have noticed, but America is in an argumentative mood right now. It seems each new week or even every new day, there is some intense national squabble over something. Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation fight being the latest. Our current era of extreme partisanship appears to reward making bold, if not always true, claims, seeking out evidence that supports one's case and ignoring evidence that doesn't. So what, if any, role does education play in all this? A new opinion piece in Ed Week argues quite a big one. Kate Gardaqui, a former middle and high school teacher, now a fellow with the Great Schools Partnership, says the way many teachers teach argumentation nowadays could be contributing to this culture-wide sense of combativeness. She says education's current focus on argumentation in all disciplines is making kids more argumentative without necessarily making them more critical thinkers. So I want to turn to my teachers, again, Maddie and Jamie here in Kansas City, Kevin in Chicago. And I first want to start with what Gardaqui says is wrong with how many teachers, including herself, teach or have taught kids how to make arguments. And you may agree or disagree with this, but she writes, and I'm quoting from her Ed Week piece, as the years went by, a problem became clear to me in my classroom. Too many students seem to be learning that the first step to crafting an argument is finding evidence to support a preformed opinion. As the Internet became ubiquitous, this instinct became more and more dangerous, end quote. So she says that students too often entered an assignment or project with preformed conclusions, sought out evidence that supported that argument. Does, does this, uh, what she's saying resonate with you and your experiences in class? So one of the things I focus a lot on in my class is, is discussions. We'll, you know, bring up a controversial topic or something that's been in the news a lot lately. And the, the big thing I like to address is bias, um, because we all sort of come to the table, you know, with bias. But are we willing, you know, to, to sort of table our bias, forget about, you know, the other side's arguments? So this is something that is challenging when you have a classroom discussion of 25 and 30 kids who are yelling and they all want to be heard or they don't believe the other side is correct. So 
it's something to bring, to, you know, in the classroom, but it's not always easy. Yeah. So you, you, it seems like you, but you try to at least address bias, like, right up front. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, Jamie, Maddie, how does argumentation come up in your class? I mean, you, I, I think, Jamie, your, your class itself, this application class, probably deals with this a lot, writing persuasively, trying to make arguments. The English curriculum that we have has a whole unit on argumentation. And it. when I was reading through the topics or the resources for today, I was, I was this is my class. You're right. This, because she mentions in the article that it's common core based to teach argumentation in a certain style with, you know, finding um, textual evidence to back up your claim and to back up your opinions and then have reasoning to define why that evidence fits in. When she talked about actually looking at what's happening in the world and asking two different questions, than what we teach for the Common Core, I, I just I really agreed with that actually, and so even though I have been teaching it this way, the Common Core way, I have to take a step back and look at how I get students to look at the world because that is the problem. They're not looking at the world; they're having their preconceived notions and finding evidence to defend that. And as we all know, you can find pretty much anything on the can, internet. Can you can you go more into you, you, you've referenced the, you know, the common core way of doing things? Can you go into more into what you mean by that and what the kind of evolving standards in the common core era are um, emphasizing maybe more than in the past, and how that's affected how you teach kids to argue? Evidence based, evidence based, evidence based. You have to find evidence, and sometimes students can't discern the appropriate resource. They find something that matches their opinion, and they quote it, and mm-hmm. that's their evidence. And that's that's across the board. That's not just ELA. That's find textual evidence to back up mm-hmm. your information, and that's the. And big you can push. find you can find evidence for anything yes. um, with the internet at your at your fingertips. Right, uh, Maddie, want to bring you into this? I know you teach younger kids, so you might not be. No, well, I'm to- uh, we're looped in, yeah, man. Yeah, t- tell we're me, like yeah. ground zero. <laughs> this was this was one where I was like, oh, this is this is a great topic because it it affects grade school as well because we lay all the groundwork for kids to be able to do higher level claim ba- like claim evidence-based writing. So like we read a story about um, the three little pigs and we wanted students to be able to defend, well, which house is the strongest? How do you know? And so they say, oh, the brick house is the strongest. I know this because in the text it says, like, that's a pretty bread and butter, like, example of how I would teach that. And it's everything. That's kind of one of, like, the main, if not the only critical theory that I teach in grade school. So if you're, the the point is to get them to make an argument or, you know, write a thesis statement or come up with some kind of claim and then to go out and find evidence to back that claim up. I mean, really, what's the the end point? The end point is to like make a, I guess what you would call a winning argument. Yeah. Right? I mean, is that, is that the end point or is the end point to find truth? I mean, I think that the end point is to create a winning argument, but it presupposes that the text you're using is reliable. I think that's like the crux of the issue because, I don't think it's a good idea to just say, well, like, you shouldn't just be doing claims-based or evidence-based argumentation. Like, we we have to go to the other side of the pendulum, and you need to be inferencing more, and you need to be throwing the net wider. Like, I think that there are really good things with with both parts. You need both things to make a good argument. Like, you need to throw your net wide— draw on your observations, think about the observations, talk about them, find the truth, and then make a thesis statement off of that. But then once you do make your thesis statement, 
like you do need the skills that we're teaching kids. So I'm hesitant to like completely knock the way I'm teaching argumentation off the table because I think it's important. I just think right now it's the primary step. Like you're going to do this first and instead it should be the secondary step. Uh, Jamie and Kevin, uh, teaching secondary, give me an example of of maybe something you've done recently or, or maybe are currently in the middle of uh, where you have asked kids to to make an argument or defend um, a claim or a thesis statement. What does that look like in class? Sure. Just before I sort of touch on that, I wanted to uh, go back to something Maddie said in terms of like the three little pigs. Now, I've, I'm a little rusty on the story again, and I have a toddler, so I'll probably get into it pretty soon. But yes. <laughs> um, like the which pigs being the most successful, getting back to God, Kate and her last name is very difficult for me to pronounce. Uh, Gardaqui, yeah, that's the that's way I'm pronouncing it. Only, so <laughs> so she, the, the article ends, and it was a, sort of a positive spin, that we should sort of value problem-solving over arguing. Because I think in today's society, in our classrooms, everything is like, argue, because I need to win this argument, right? Mm-hmm. But we're kind of undervaluing the importance of, first off, being heard. I didn't see two words I was looking for in the article, respect and empathy. But arguing is also about hopefully getting to problem solving. But in terms of like things I've done in the classroom, I've talked about voting. Should they lower the voting age to 16? We've seen so much more, you know, youth civic engagement, particularly like I would say even like post Parkland. So one of the things I did a few weeks ago was I posed that question to the class. And then we did this sort of four corners activity. I'm sure you guys are familiar with this. This is the agree strongly or agree, disagree, strongly agree, strongly disagree. And I was actually surprised that the answers were kind of split. Some felt, yes, you know, 16-year-olds should have a voice in, you know, we have this big election coming up in next month, then in 2020. Some felt that still teenagers were too immature to vote. So we looked at charter a table that showed that 18 to 29-year-olds were the lowest demographic when it came to turnout in the 2016 election. And then we read an article and did some writing after that. Um, Jamie. The argumentative piece that we work on in my class is should students be held accountable for the things like the comments they make on social media as far as mm. at a job interview? They have to Very pick, interesting. They That's have, intense. Yeah. As, and as eighth graders, they make a lot of posts. And so it's really important for them to be thinking about that. We have lots of resources and it's all part of the curriculum and they don't get to form an opinion. Well, they probably do in their mind anyway, but that part of the process doesn't happen until after they've read all of the articles and all of the different resources that the curriculum provides so that we know that they're reliable. So it's all very much practice coming up with a you know, discernible argument, figuring out how you feel about one side or the other, or if you're in the middle, and what articles helped sway you that way. They eventually write a piece, you know, an argumentative piece that uses the articles provided to them so that they don't get to Google. They don't get to, you know, just find something that supports their own opinion. They have to, you know, form their opinion based off what they've read. It's very interesting because when you mentioned that you do the Four Corners activity and that some students think that they're not mature enough, it's probably the ones that are mature enough that feel that their peers can't be mature enough to vote. And when I read these papers, it's usually the students who are responsible with their social media that feel that, you know, they should be held accountable. And the kids that aren't as responsible don't think they should be held accountable. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, thir- I'm, th- I'm in my mid-30s. There are mid- people in their 30s that are not mature enough to vote. That's what I tell them. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
One of Kate Gardaquie's main problems, and I think, Jamie, you hit on it almost immediately when we started this conversation, is this idea that kids have a tendency to argue for their for preformed conclusions, right? Like you, you have an assignment or you have a question that you pose, um, like the one you just did about social media and whether kids should be held accountable at, during job interviews. Kids will fall down on, on one side or the other, but they'll have they'll have their answer before they even really do any research or they 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 even write the assignment. So, right. how do you structure an activity or a project where there, there is an actual sincere engagement with? The problem. With the facts or the problems, and they don't necessarily know which way they're going to go. I don't think I'm teaching argumentation wrong, but I think the piece that I'm missing is that research piece, like that laying the foundation of you need to read all of this information. You need to make all of these observations before you come to a conclusion. And that's something that... Um, Maybe you just wait and post the question second. Right. You're like, today, Let's just read this. We're like just... today, like the object of our class for the next week is to just become familiar with this topic. Right. And then on Friday, hey, what conclusions can you draw about this topic? Right. Are there any conclusions that you think are particularly important and worth defending? Right. Okay, let's pick one and let's defend it. Like I think, maybe that would be... I think our questions need to be more open like that and less mm-hmm. guiding. One might ask, as we're talking about this, why teach kids how to argue? I mean, of course, I know the Common Core standards and the standards that are influenced by Common Core, like NextGen, um, there's a growing emphasis on argumentation. So you could just say, well, it's because the standards say we have to do it. But I mean, beyond that, why, why teach kids how to argue? I think critical thinking is important. And a lot of the times they're not, they're not thinking critically. They're thinking, they're, well, at least they're regurgitating opinions set by their peer group or their family. And so thinking critically has been kind of lost when it comes to that. So teaching argumentation, I think the ultimate goal, at least for me, is to have them start thinking more critically about the world around them. I think it's vital because it's the application step of what Kate wants teachers to do. It's beautiful if you can discern and find truth and throw your net wide and like that you need to do that. But then what? Super cool, Kyle. You read for a month about climate change. Good for you. Here's your sticker. Like, if you don't know how to how to disseminate that information to other people, so what? Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. On to our next topic, the cognitive benefits of play are well-documented. It's been shown to help with creativity, language acquisition, executive functioning. It can make kids more collaborative and empathetic. It also lessens the likelihood of childhood obesity, and the list goes on. But kids in our modern society are playing less and less. Schools are more focused on high-stakes testing and are cutting down on or completely eliminating recess. Likewise, many parents motivated to push their kids to high academic achievement, fill their children's free time with structured activities like sports, tutoring, and music lessons. It's gotten so bad, the American Academy of Pediatrics is now recommending that pediatricians prescribe play for kids. As the AAP policy report plainly states, play is not frivolous, and pediatricians should stress the need for it in schools and at home. We have three teachers, three different levels, elementary school, middle school, high school. What does play look like for kids your age? This is typically seen as maybe a younger kid's issue, but I'm sure there's play um, all across. What was play look like? Well, in my district, we recently just got a lot of grants for this play. 
stuff. And we, this play stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotten to the point where I'm and, immediately intrigued. Yeah, like, right. What? So we got a wellness grant to create a, um, a it's called an outdoor learning center. We have this time after lunch. It's called Power Hour, and they play outside as long as weather permits. And so we got For an hour. It's not a whole hour. It's just part um. of the, I know. It's, it is at the high school, so we just kind of adopted the name. And unfortunately, it's not an hour. But another thing that our district did is they mandated – well, they didn't mandate. They added PE as, to the eighth grade team. Before, it was just physical training, and it was an elective. Now it's a core class, and the only way out of it is if you're in band. <laughs> right. Do they, have, do they have like do they have band practice during the the gym class? Or well, if you take year long band, then you don't have to take PE. Okay. So I mean, I think it works out perfectly for those students. Yeah, yeah. I was no in band. Yeah. So they have PE. PE got to pick up the clarinet. Right. <laughs> so they have PE four days a week and health one day a week, and that's kind of our eighth grade model. So the outdoor learning center, we have a huge walking path now that goes even into the surrounding neighborhoods. There are four new basketball goals. There's outdoor chess. So if students want to play, it's like... Like in a park? Like a bench with a... Well, no, it's actually like two and a a half feet. Yeah, giant, two and a half feet pieces, size pieces, and um, four square and bags and all kinds of things that this, this PE teacher teamed up with local community to get this grant to fill the you know the back patio with all of these Whoa. opportunities to play. And it seems like it really driven by that individual teacher. I mean, really driven by the vision of that person who saw this as a need or saw this yes, as a priority. Absolutely. And he has and that's why he advocated for turning the 8th grade PE curriculum into only one day a week health. So the students are still getting like those health benefits, but they're they like he very much works those kids like in the in the weight room or on the on the court. So wow, I was I was about ready to, to in this segment um, rattle off some really um, disturbing statistics about uh, about recess and playtime going down over the last thirty years. But uh, Jamie, you've undercut my. Uh, I'm my sorry. This is, yeah. this is good. <laughs> this sounds good though. Uh, but uh, our recess increased. It used to be twenty five <laughs> minutes, and now it's thirty. Okay, so why why did they make that decision? I mean, same reasons. Oh, the, the data. The other yeah. part of this that I was thinking of when I saw that kids don't play enough, it's they are playing on Fortnite. Yeah. On I was a video uh, That's what I was going to talk about every single Monday. Hey, what did you do this weekend? What did you do last night? And it's not. They Netflix. don't. Do you guys hear this, though? They say, I played the game. Do they say that to you? Sometimes, I'm it's, sure. It's, it's Fortnite. They it's don't Fortnite. S- it's, ne- it's Netflix. To quote the statistics, statistics that Here I was going to quote, yeah, the AAP says that from 1981 to 1997, children's, and that was so 1997, that was a long time ago, but I think it's gotten worse since then. Children's playtime decreased by 25%. National surveys, more recent national surveys, have shown just over half of children nowadays go outside to walk or play once per day, so half, so the other half don't do that. And this is, I guess, more institutionally, nearly a third of U.S. kindergarten children no longer have recess. But at least it sounds like at your school. One third? One third. But kindergarten? Le- yeah. But at least it sounds like at the schools you work at that there is a recognition that there needs to be more playtime, at least in school. But the the countervailing factor is that outside of school, a lot of your students are not getting that. No. Uh-uh. Kevin, what, is, what does play look like at the high school level? Um, and do you think your sure. kids get enough of it? I, I do not. Um, I know they have gym uh, once a day, but these classes are usually like 
40 kids. I used to sub some with Chicago Public Schools, and it was like, you just got to survive those periods. Like, here's the basketballs. Just dodge the basketballs because they're whipping them around or volleyballs. Oh, my um, Well, somebody's yeah. playing, it sounds like. Do they, like, <laughs> use... They're, they're playing. They're playing. Um, but it, it's always, you know, when you get those kids after gym class, it is uh, it's like a gym in there, uh, in your classroom, because they're very sweaty. But, um, <laughs> no, I, I think there's the, the problem is, with at least my school and a lot of the neighborhoods the kids come from is things are not necessarily safe. Like when the sun goes down, um, like it's really unfortunate. We'll have like a really nice weather weekend. I'd be like, go to the park, you know, and sometimes their parents won't let them, you know, leave. And that's a whole other issue as well as time. Um, You know, I I know a lot of the kids at my school, at least they take care of younger siblings or they Mm -hmm. have jobs. Um, I don't know. You talked about 1997, the amount of uh, free time, recess time decreased. I don't know if that's the same. It's a little early for No Child Left Behind. Um, but there's been, like, I think a shift towards more, like, one of the articles mentioned, just, like, performance-based and everything's efficient, efficient. And we don't give kids, even at, like, sophomore, 10th grade level, enough time to just hang out. But then they'd probably be on their phone Snapchatting or Facebooking or Instagramming or whatever. Um, at the same time. But it, it is unfortunate, at least in Chicago, that some of these kids go home to neighborhoods where you can't just go to the park and stay out. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's an excellent point because I think, you know, I was going to say one of, some of my more vivid memories from childhood are, you know, staying out late and playing with friends in the neighborhood and being at the park and not, not necessarily having parental supervision. Yeah, but unstructured time, playing imaginative games, playing baseball or basketball, you know, having interpersonal conflicts, but like hashing it out and, and, and dealing with it on our own and staying out until it was dark and had to run home in the dark. I think that's being done less overall, but it's a good point, Kevin, to say that there are some neighborhoods or some areas of the country where I think parents and families and kids rightfully and understandably don't uh, don't have the opportunities to do that or wouldn't necessarily want to do that. But I guess for those who do, I mean, are your kids doing that, you no, think? No, no. I think that like— No, unfortunately, yeah. no. At home, like, they're battling screen time, and that is competing for, like, their free imaginative playtime. And then at school, like, the reference to No Child Left Behind, like, American schools aren't taking away recess to, like, be assholes. Like, we're taking away recess because we're cramped for academic time in our the district I work in, I mean, they come in from their 30-minute recess and, like, it is go time. I think it also <laughs> is reflective of, you know, the parenting, too. I I have gone back, and this, it could be district-related, but I think that our parents aren't parenting. They expect the teachers to parent. They expect us to do all of these things. And so now, all of a sudden, their kids are, you know, childhood obesity is rampant, so now the school's responsible. And, and they could be not home because they're working or they could be not home because they're socializing. I I don't know what that is, but they are just not parenting. Tell your child to not play Fortnite for four hours. Tell your child to, you know, get outside and play if it's safe, if there's an environment. Or take your kid to the rec center if you have one. I mean... I feel like there are other systemic issues, though, that are pressing on the playtime more than... Like parenting issues, like and that's why I said a, my yeah. district is more like that. Like there was a family that lived across the street from me when I was growing up, and like their parents were pretty crazy, and like their kids still got outside and played. I mean, they were like hyper destructive. Like if you hung out with them, like the type of play you were doing was like, let's egg all the cars. I used to, we had landlines, and you would call someone's house, mm-hmm. and it would ask their mom, "Is so and so home? 
can they come over and play? And play was unstructured. It was going to the park. It was riding bikes. It was playing Nintendo sometimes. But I think there is kind of a, I don't want to say a class or an economic issue as well, is that you need money to maybe send your kid to the pool or to send them, you know, somewhere or to, you know, take them to a baseball game. Everything is dependent on that. You know, that's one of the things I try to tell the kids is that you can get on the L or on the bus, and it's a couple bucks, and you can go to downtown and things like that. But there is sometimes that apprehension to leave their neighborhoods. I don't know if yeah. no, no one mentioned fear. I mean, there's there's fear. And, like, my uh, mom was just, home. You know what I mean? Like My mom was home, too. Like, I, I was – and, and I'm not saying, like, oh, therefore mom needs to be home, but – it is – that's not – the conclusion I, I don't want to draw is point. like – I don't want to draw a conclusion of, oh, all these single – like that's not the conclusion I'm going for. I'm going for more of a um, I had a plan in place in case I broke my arm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I was out dangling from trees, but there, there was were, a safety net. There was a safety Tackle net. football. And the yeah. safety net doesn't necessarily have to be your own parent or like it could have been – any reliable adult at home. But the fact of the matter is a lot of my kids, like, they're not stuck at home playing Fortnite. Maybe that's, like, not their first choice. But some kids, it's a forced choice because I I wouldn't let my 8-year-old run, a, run amok in the neighborhoods yeah. and be awesome and light, like, f- like, yeah, like, you used to, like, I used to light little fires out, like, at Barrett's Park in St. Louis. Like, we all did. You know yeah. what I mean? But the fact of the matter is, Guilty. like, when Guilty. I burned, like, when I, I got stuck up in a tree, well, like, my neighborhood friend went and knocked on my door, and then, like, John Kelly came and helped me get down from the tree. But if, did you know, you, you knew the people that right. in your community, right? Is that, like, a whole other issue, too? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I knew everyone. Or night jobs. We haven't even Chicago. talked about that. Like, some parents work night shifts. Well, yeah, yes. and that I kind of touched Very on true. that. You know? Like, if they're not home, they... Who's going to drive yeah. you? Who's going to pick you up? Right. They take care of younger siblings. I never had to do that. Yes. Yeah. Well, just to kind of wrap this conversation up, I, I will do... I do want to point to um, one bit of research that I found very interesting, published by The Lancet recently. They assessed more than 4,000 kids between the ages of 8 and 11 on um, several standardized measures of achievement, and they found that the highest-achieving kids generally did three things in common. They slept, on average, between 9 and 11 hours a night. Jeez. Um, spent less than two hours a day in front of screens. So that gets to several, you know what you have said frequently in this segment. And, and crucial to the conversation we've had, they had at least an hour of physical activity a day. Now, for kids 8 to 11, likely in a lot of cases, that's playing outdoors. Um, do you have students that, that, that fit that criteria? I mean, do you have students who are are doing those things or are getting their kind of like what we would, uh, you know, the, the, the amounts of play that we would want them to get? Yeah, I do. I don't think, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be, don't apologize for it. Well, I mean, so if the kid, yeah. for, the, yeah, for the kids who do, I mean, is it, I mean, is, is it just the structures that you're talking about? They have that yeah. kind of like family structure. They have the, the organization, the, the kind of family mm-hmm. discipline. and Yeah, like and, they're, they have, I would describe it as like you're more likely to find a kid engaging in those activities when they have access to the money and social structures that allow for it. Like they're going over to grandpa's house and like playing in his shed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so like mom's at work, but they get to go over to another family member's house who lives close by who can monitor them, and they're, like, building... One of my kids built a, a maze for his rats. 
super cool, right? <laughs> like, go to know. their grandparents and play in his shed. Um, <laughs> I did that. I rag. did that. Yeah, I, mean, I, did, I did that rag. exact same thing. I went <laughs> to my grandparents who lived out in the country. And we would just go in their shed. And I mean, it was a shed <laughs> with like farm tools and, and, rust, and sharp implements like and rusty nails. <laughs> well, my, and my gra- grandparents didn't care. <laughs> my, grandpa- my grandpa <laughs> so would give fun. me old nails to hammer into a board. Yeah, just, just to keep me entertained. <laughs> there was there were tractors and old cars. There was like an old Studebaker in there, and I. We'd climb in it. It was all dusty. And, my, my, and I'm alive. My, <laughs> right? We survived. My grandpa had a van, and literally the entire back interior was just gone. There was a hole in the floor of it. And one time he drove us around his property. And, you know, we're just, like, reaching through, like, touching <laughs> touching the grass. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. We will go to our uh, final segment before Kids These Days and Headlines. Uh, you may remember back in your teen years the abject terror, the loathsome feeling in the pit of your stomach whenever you spotted the makings of a pimple on your face. Mm. Well, plenty of teens <laughs> still get that feeling. Acne remains a scourge of adolescence. For most, the condition is temporary and not all that severe, though when you're a teen, it may feel like a few zits is the end of the world. But there may also be a silver lining to these skin problems. The Journal of Human Capital is publishing um, a research paper that has found a correlation between acne and academic success. Looking at thousands of students' responses on a national longitudinal survey given between the mid-1990s and mid-2000s, the researchers found that students with acne generally had higher GPAs and were more likely to earn a bachelor's degree in college. In theory, the authors of this report write, having acne may reduce feelings of being socially accepted, thereby reducing time spent socializing and increasing time spent studying, end quote. Now, again, they're clear, and I want to make clear, this is a correlation. This is an association, not causation. Um, But I thought it was just an interesting study, and I I do want to, I had kind of forgotten how big a deal acne was when I was an adolescent, now that I'm in my 30s. Is it still a big deal with your kids? I mean, the kids who struggle with acne. We don't um, have acne yet. Uh, you're, in, you're in elementary school. You haven't gotten there yet. Oh, the eighth graders, it's rampant. <laughs> After reading through this, I was thinking back to some of the students that had the worst acne, and they are some of the best students. But then at the same time, some of our more popular students have acne, and it doesn't affect their socialization at all. So it's an interesting correlation. But but you would say that, I mean, kids are able to, to get over it. It's not, a, it's not yeah. like a, a socially crippling no, condition. not in my school. And I will say most kids at some point get acne. I mean, it's been it's been global, was, worldwide. It's like one of the most that, common that one maladies. group of kids that never got it though. And you're like, <laughs> and you everyone hated those the, kids. <laughs> how the f does your face look so good every single day? Uh, Kevin, in high school, what's it like? Sure. And this is I never thought I'd say it, but the kids have pretty good skin. I don't see a lot of acne uh, on their faces. I mean, I had issues a little bit as a sophomore in high school. But I, I think the big thing, and after reading the article from The Atlantic, was like it's very hard to tell a high school kid that it is going to get better. This acne will eventually go away because they're living, you know, every every single day is like the end of the world. So that's something I love how it talks about it. Acne is virtually incomplied, right? It will affect, you know, rich, poor. Uh, every different race, but you're not thinking about that when you have a giant pimple on your nose. And the amount of money spent, you know, I can't remember exactly how many billions on, you know, skincare products, but I, I really surprisingly do not see it that much. I don't know why that is, but yeah, well, it is also. I, I, just, I was thinking. Sorry, just one last yeah. thing too. Like this, when I saw the article, I feel like this is just such like a stereotype thing. Like tall people are good at basketball. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like oh, if you have acne, you're a nerd, <laughs> and you're good at you know you're, you're good at school. So uh, I don't know. 
Well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. The U.S. Marshal Service says the cost for providing security for Education Secretary Betsy DeVos will run up to $7.7 million next fiscal year. That's on top of the more than $12 million spent on her security detail the past two years. DeVos receives around-the-clock protection from the U.S. Marshals, a highly unusual arrangement. She frequently encounters protesters on school visits and other appearances around the country. She's got to watch out for Rebecca. <laughs> Weird. The, yeah. and, and the Grizzlies. Yeah, though, and the Grizzlies. <laughs> though the Marshals have n- uh, not detailed the nature of threats DeVos receives, um, uh, they still are giving her 24-7 protection. I shouldn't laugh at that. Maybe she really is experiencing unsafe that is, that's Thanks. empathy, Maddie. We were talking about that earlier. That's very good. And the Rebecca thing was a joke. That was unkind. <laughs> it was a little funny. Though. I think Rebecca would probably so not mind. No, she wouldn't. High school students in Texas are being taught how to properly interact with police during traffic stops. The state-mandated curriculum includes a 16-minute video that depicts good and bad scenarios. Among other pointers, students are told in the video to keep both hands on the steering wheel and only reach yep. for their driver's license if what? asked by the officer. The traffic stop curriculum is required by state law, and police officers are also required to complete their own version of the training. What, what's in there? Very version? good idea, I think. Yeah, Don't well, shoot kids. Maybe. Is, that, is that in their video? <laughs> <laughs> and the Students' Union at the University of Manchester in England is encouraging its members not to clap during campus events. The union recently voted to swap audible clapping for British Sign Language clapping, which... Um, kind of looks like, like jazz hands. Yeah, you, you, Matt, you're doing it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. It got your fingers waving in the air. The group says the move was made in order to make deaf students and students with autism or other sensory issues feel more included in union events. Predictably now, critics, many of them online, pilloried the Manchester Students' Union for being pampered and overly sensitive. The group's leader defends the move, saying it's about creating an environment of respect. All right, well, coming up, uh, kids these days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency, find us at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard now, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Kevin, you'll go last because this is the first time you've done this. You get a good, nice example from Maddie and Jamie. So, Maddie... What are your kids into for, I, got I guess, October a, I got right a now? Good one. Okay, I've got you got a good one. Ready, ready to go. Yeah. Um, our new class pet, Dracula, which is a garden spider that lives outside of our window. It is awesome. He's there every day. He builds a web. I let one of them name the spider. We named him Dracula. So you can see him from inside oh, yeah. the class. He's like outside on a window. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm I'm hoping that this is a pretty universal experience where you're like, oh, I've seen a beautiful garden spider. Like, Kevin, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I don't. I'm oh, sorry. my gosh. I'm backing up from the mic. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do they look like? Ugh. Like I'm thinking of like a. They a- have really, they have a, a giant um, 
So you're saying just his body yeah, is a quarter his size. Body that's is a huge, huge spider. Yes. Yeah, that's scary. It's a smaller <laughs> head, really, really big. Um, get the kid with the rat maze. Get him out. <laughs> he graduated. He was one of my fifth graders last year. Bring him back. So <laughs> shout out, so, shout out to Cash Bullock. <laughs> Hope your rats are doing well. Uh, <laughs> Hope your rats are doing well. Well, yeah. um, uh, so garden <laughs> spiders in Maddie's class. I mean. We should say, I don't think the, the life expectancy for spiders is that long. Shh. <laughs> okay. We're in third Charlotte. grade, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, Charlotte's Charlotte. Web. Yeah, they should we read Charlotte's Web grade. next. Yeah. Oh, tears. <laughs> Maybe that's how I'll teach empathy. There you we'll go. We'll find the body and bury it. The, the old version of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. The original version of Charlotte's Web. Uh, Jamie, what are your kids into? Oh, just Fortnite dances. They can't sit uh, still. Yes, they can't sit still. I... You know, I well, they get a question right, they do a Fortnite dance. They get to go to the bathroom, they do a Fortnite dance out the door. They get to line up for lunch, they do a Fortnite dance all the way to the like oh, that's to exhausting. lunch. It's just well, it probably ties into the fact that they don't get enough play. But <laughs> trying to play, it's a, it's a scream for help. Yes, they just need movement. <laughs> they just need movement. No, but it, every time a new one comes out and some celebrity is doing it, they're doing yeah. it. Well, I'd, um, addendum to that, my wife is also she's a fifth grade teacher. Or an elementary school teacher. Now she used to be fifth grade, but she's a reading specialist. Uh, we saw we were out of breakfast the other day, and of course there was in the waiting area there was a kid doing a dance, which I did not recognize because I'm not in the classroom anymore. But I, my wife just goes, "I cannot stand those Fortnite dances." No, I know. I know. Does she play you have to Fortnite? Pay for them? To, do, no. Don't you? Do you have to pay to get these new dances or something? I have no idea. Probably. I don't know either. Okay, Kevin, what are your kids into? Sure. So maybe just because we're in Chicago, but do you guys know what J's are? When I talk about J's, when I talk about shoes? Yeah. Jordans. Um, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. So the Michael Jordan shoes. Now, growing up in the 90s, like, I remember when each pair came out, but they were always way too expensive uh, for me to have. But all these kids are obsessed with J's to the point that I have had a student, I had him as a freshman, I also had him as a sophomore, who said he is going to purchase me a pair. <laughs> Well, it'll be coming in the next week or two. He loves um, you. That's awesome. Yeah, he's, he's a special kid. Um, but, yeah, I'm supposed to have my own pair of J's that I'm going to wear during homecoming week uh, in a couple weeks. Wow. Because um, they do make fun of my shoes quite a bit, even though I think they're cool. Um, they're not. But, yeah, <laughs> they're not. They're not. But uh, J's are the, uh, the the very popular thing. Do you have a new pair of J's? So I got a new pair. So. All right. Well, congratulations, Kevin. I do not have a pair I'm of J's. I'm excited. White know. and blue. Yeah. Send right. a picture. We can link it. <laughs> well, thanks there to we our, go. Thanks to our teachers this week. Good idea, Maddie. Uh, thanks to our teachers this week, Maddie Burkember, Jamie Myers, Kevin Vanderporten in Chicago. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers and give them some J's, too. Yeah. Good delivery. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs>